Hello, I'm Matt Chorley. This is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Today, half a century of Labour victories, but mostly defeats, through the career of Anne Taylor. She first stood for election 50 years ago this week, and the highs and lows of her career seem to mirror Labour's fortunes. So we'll hear her verdict on every Labour leader, from Wilson and Callaghan to Foote and Corbyn, Blair, Brown and now Starmer. Plus a sneak peek of this week's How to Win an Election with Peter Manson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein. And if you like what you hear on the podcast, join me for Politics Out the Boring Bits on Times Radio. Listen for free on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker or download the Times Radio app. It's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. So our new Commons speaker, uh, listener, Johnny Saunderson, uh, getting in touch yesterday with his audition to be the new Commons speaker. And we need him, because it's all kicking off in the Commons. Stephen is cross with Lindsay, because Lindsay tried to help Kira fall, avoid falling into Stephen's trap. But Lindsay fell into it instead, allowing Rishi to have the last laugh, at least until Lee made it all about him. Thanks to his £100,000 exclusive deal with GB News OBS. Which means, instead of Labour being in trouble, the airwaves are filled with Tories trying not to answer the question, was Lee Anderson's comments saying that Islamists control Sadiq Khan Islamophobic. The ability of the Conservatives to take a row about someone else and turn it into themselves and their own crisis is as impressive as it is self-destructive. For instance, here is, if you didn't hear it yesterday, imagine going to the dentist and pulling teeth. Here's Tory MP Paul Howell on the show yesterday. I have not spent time trying to work out who controls London. I'm a North East MP and that's where I focus my efforts. You're, you're not interested in the fact that the former Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party has been suspended over the weekend and included, accused of Islamophobia? Of, of course I'm concerned about it. But that was the weekend, Matt. I'm just back into London now. Yeah, and then this was the Transport Secretary Mark Harper. Lee Anderson says something that was wrong and that's why he lost the whip. And then this morning, tying himself in knots, Tom Persglove, another government minister on Times Radio Breakfast. Do you think it is Islamophobic what he said? I don't think Lee personally is racist, but what he said was unacceptable. But, but, and I did, think the but, Prime but, but, Minister was, was did right. Did what he say, say but I'm just interested in this very specific question. Did what he, was what he said Islamophobic? Do you think it was or it wasn't? All I'm going to say is that I just think what he said was wrong, acceptable. All of them there being very careful to stick to the lines to take. Just keep saying it was wrong. Of course, they're all taking their lead from Rishi Sunak yesterday. I think it's incumbent on all of us, especially those elected, elected to Parliament, not to, not to inflame our debates in a way that's harmful to others. Lee's comments weren't acceptable. They were wrong. They were wrong. Order! 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 Now, as we always do on a Tuesday, here's a little sneak peek of this week's edition of How to Win an Election, where we were discussing what Rishi Sunak should do about Liz Truss. I went to visit Liz Truss when she was Justice Secretary to discuss with her a speech she wanted to deliver on the importance of the rule of law, and uh, something that I care about a lot. And I noticed that on the shelf in her office, she had uh, Life at the Centre, Roy Jenkins's memoirs. So I picked it up, and Liz Truss said to me, uh, he's my hero, about Roy Jenkins. And now she is appearing on platforms with Steve Bannon, um, and basically, uh, you know, failing to call out comments about uh, 
Tommy Robinson, but more importantly, because I, you know, she could, I suppose, say, you know, she wasn't listening or she wasn't commenting on that particular item or whatever lame excuse she might have. She she literally described the Economist magazine as being a friend of the deep state. I mean, it's completely out to lunch, really. <laughs> um, uh, 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 you know, and so I, I, I really, I, in some ways. Um, so I've been saying from the beginning that if Rishi Sunak wants to uh, be able to fight a general election on a stable footing, he has to say Liz Truss was a disaster. I'm the change from Liz Truss. Danny, don't you think this goes? I mean, really, what you're saying is this goes to the heart of the huge strategic error that Sunak made at the beginning of his premiership when he did not explicitly uh, distance himself and cut himself from what had gone before uh, and from the sort of right-wing conservative thinking which has basically become Faragist. And what he tried to do instead of of defining himself in his own terms and reaching out to you know, the, the country uh, as a whole, um, he tried sort of simultaneously to basically appease uh, the activist base of his own party. And it's what yeah. happens to politicians when they try to like, ride two horses. It looks very clever at the beginning, but then as the horses uh, diverge, yeah. you end up doing the splits and then fall to earth. That there's still time because because Keir Starmer obviously did exactly the same thing at the beginning of his leadership. He didn't pick, um, and yeah. he chose the shadow cabinet designed to uh, kind of uh, paper over that. And ultimately, he was forced to choose, and he did choose. Um, he tried so, to put unity before direction. Yeah. Uh, and I and think that's that was a mistake. And, did as well. Correct. And now he can, he, it's a mistake and you can correct it. And he's corrected that in part by kicking Jeremy Corbyn out. So I suppose the question is, Polly, should Rishi Sunak do the same to Liz Truss? The one thing that the, if you look at the polls, the, almost the entire nation could agree on is that Liz Truss is a disaster. You know, was it 80, she was saying, talking about the will of the people must be respected, the will of the people. Well, actually, 80% of people wanted her to resign and thought it was a disaster. Is, is, would, there, would there be an advantage, like to get people to, who've ignored her up until now, to sit up and take notice of Rishi Sunak, if he went to war with Liz Truss, would that help? So I, I think that if you are a conservative, the only time you should use the phrase the deep state is when you are denouncing the notion that there is one. You certainly shouldn't be linking The Economist to such a notion, esteemed newspaper that it is. Though I always thought it was a magazine. Don't understand why it calls itself a newspaper. That's a bit of a swerve. <laughs> well, the FT was also in there, the Environment Agency. They're part of the deep state. <laughs> um, they can't even clean up the rivers, never mind bring down a government. So I, I think, you know, it, it would be a big political choice for Rishi Sunak to make. Um, and and he is struggling to make those kind of big strategic choices. We know he started off set promising to be the change that Britain needs after 30 years of something. And now he's saying that we're in the green shoots of recovery. You know, we talked about that before, like, you know, let's keep a steady ship because it's starting to work. Um, but he is still frightened of really making choices. He's brought David Cameron into his cabinet, which says a centrist, reasonable, uh, compassionate conservatism message. But he has also done very little to silence uh, the the dissenting voices. And I think it's because he's frightened that there will be a breakaway from people like Lee Anderson being courted by reform. If Nigel Farage were to join reform, a sense that, in fact, that is what would really destroy them is if that kind of right-wing flank of the party was able to organise. Keir Starmer took the choice that 
it was better to drive those people out, um, partly because they didn't have such a well-developed vehicle to go to. You know, George Galloway's party is not going to be a party that challenges Labour's integrity in the general election. The Green Party remains very uh, small uh, and, and unlikely to be able to challenge and also obviously much more kind of intellectually complicated. The Liberal Democrats, similarly, not really in the sort of uh, Corbynistic camp. There, were, there are people within the party who, who think that way. So it, it is partly electoral tactics that enabled Keir Starmer to make this choice. But from that position of strength, he has, has done it. And I think that that has, has strengthened him. And if you want to hear the full episode of How to Win an Election, just search for How to Win an Election wherever you're listening to this. Up next, half a century of Labour's victories, but mostly defeats. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Big Thing. It was 50 years ago, on Thursday, February the 28th, that Britain went to the polls. The Conservative Prime Minister was beset by problems. An energy crisis forcing ministers to plead with the public to turn the lights off. Soaring inflation, leaving millions suffering. The wobbling of power sharing in Northern Ireland. Even Britain having to host Eurovision because the previous year's winners were unable to. Sound familiar? Well, he called a snap general election asking who governs Britain. Tory PM Ted Heath again faced Labour's former PM Howard Wilson in a straight rerun of the 1970 election. But as a result of the change in the world situation, we're going to have difficult times. Britain is in grave danger of becoming a broken-backed economy. A Labour government will not accept those increased prices. It's time for your voice to be heard. The voice of the moderate and reasonable people of Britain. The voice of the majority. The pollsters and the parties found an unprecedented number of don't knows. And now it seems to me that the nation as a whole has declared itself a don't know. A month ago, the Conservatives had a working majority and nearly a year and a half to go. It is manifest that they have not received the mandate they sought for continuing their existing policies. The new government must be at work as quickly as possible. On the 28th of February 1974, polling day, Labour gained 14 seats, taking to 301, 17 short of a majority. But now the biggest party over Heath's Conservatives, who are down to 297. So, a hung parliament. Heath tried to strike a coalition deal with Jeremy Thorpe's Liberals, but this collapsed. And on Monday, March the 4th, Howard Wilson became Prime Minister for the second time. The Tories were out. But Labour were in without a majority. Could history repeat itself 
this year. Just last month, new Labour mastermind Peter Mandelson warned on how to win an election that the prospect of a hung parliament in 2024 is underpriced. Jeremy Thorpe chose not uh, to prop up Ted Heath and his government because he thought that that government had been rejected by the electorate in February 74, but the electorate had also showed that they were unsure about Labour. Mm. They were not confident about ushering in a majority Labour government, and that was the result that, that was reflected in that sort of rather nuanced state of public uh, uh, opinion. And what you might find this year is if... Labour falls back from its current lead. If Labour fails to maintain its present momentum and political appeal, and the a result is somewhat more ambivalent uh, in, in reality than, it, than the opinion polls are currently suggesting. That was Peter Mandelson. Someone whose own political fortunes has mirrored those of the Labour Party is Anne Taylor, now Baroness Taylor, who first stood for election and lost 50 years ago in February 1974. She's had a front row seat to half a century of Labour victories and defeats, from her role in Jim Callaghan's whips office, wheeling in the sick and dying, survived nights in the commons, to being Tony Blair's chief whip in the 1990s, where the problem, bluntly, was having too many MPs. Let's begin, though, back at her childhood hometown of Bolton and that snap election 50 years ago this week. We were half expecting it and it happened so quickly you were plunged in at the deep end, quite literally in one respect. And, and so you just had to gather up and go. And you know, I enjoy campaigning. I enjoy knocking on doors. I enjoy talking to people. That gives you sort of a very good insight as to uh, how you should present things. What do you mean by going in, in, in at the deep end? Oh, I had an agent who thought it was very clever for the candidate to uh, go and go swimming <laughs> to try to save the local swimming bath <laughs> oh, so in the middle of the election campaign. Right. Um, I think it led to a headline that said Labour hope plunges or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting, obviously, in '74 because you had a sort of a rerun of a you know, rerun election with Ted Heath and, and Howard Wilson. Uh, trying to come back is it was that harder because obviously you change elections you want the new in the fresh not the, I don't think it was harder kid. I think Harold Wilson I, I mean he was right up there on the pedestal for me as you may have noticed and I think he understood the total mood of the country I think he understood um that he had not to pretend he could do everything. He understood that you focus on certain things and prove you can deliver something and then inspire confidence. And, yeah, he was helped by Ted Heath not being a, a very user-friendly type of politician, <laughs> where Harold was... He was confident, but he wasn't um, arrogant. And I think that that kind of stability that he projected... And, of course, you know... He'd gone through the 60s talking about the, the white heat of the technological revolution and the chances and the opportunities and the way forward. So people had real confidence that he could actually pull things together. Just as Labour failed to win a majority in 1974, Anne failed to win her seat in Bolton West, losing to the Tories by just 603 votes. But she'd soon get another chance when, in October 1974, Labour's Howard Wilson went to the country again. Well, I don't think anyone really wanted two election campaigns in a single year. 
uh, we would like to have seen the last uh, February campaign decisive so that we can have a government with authority to face up to this very grave economic crisis. Finally, Ann Taylor won her Bolton West seat and her hero, Howard Wilson, got his majority. But it was small, really small. After Wilson quit in 1976, the situation and Labour's grip on power became even more precarious. The drama of the whipping operation to keep Jim Callaghan's government winning nightly crunch votes and Anne's role in it was captured in James Graham's play, This House. Every day was different. Every day was a potential catastrophe. Every day was a potential success. We had Walter Harrison as Deputy Chief Whip, who was absolutely brilliant at manoeuvring and manipulating and whatever. We had a really good team of whips who were very different, mainly sort of middle-aged elderly men, so it was a bit strange in that respect. Um, and you know, when I first went into the Wits office, I mean, you can imagine, you know, tensions every day and all the rest of it. So there's quite a, a bit of what would be called blue language. And they used to swear and then say, sorry, Anne, swear, sorry, Anne, swear, <laughs> sorry, Anne. Until Jock Stallard came and said, it's all right, I'll sit next to Anne, I'll apologise for you, just carry on talking. <laughs> and eventually they sort of understood that I was just one of them, not because I swore as bad as them obviously <laughs> uh, but they you know you get assimilated and because they knew that you could whip a bill and make sure that things happen so you build up a sort of mutual respect that you can actually do the job and you're not just there to make up the numbers because I think that that's what a lot of women fear when they are given a role that oh you know you're the token woman they can prove that they're not discriminating so you've really got to make sure that you are doing the job and getting on with it and the the reason the job was so difficult was because the every vote was so tight that at any moment the government could lose yep. a key a key vote. Explain the length that you had to go to to try and get some of those votes through. Well, some of it was knowing the background in constituencies from MPs who had uh, potential problems and working out how you could help them if they got redundancies, how you could go to the right minister or get a ministerial visit or reassure their party or get a speaker at their local party. Uh, some of it was understanding people's personal positions. I mean, one of the things that stuck in my mind was, you know, blokes in those days used to make up reasons to be away, can't be, can't vote on Wednesday, we've got some redundancies pending. And then one of their mates would say, why was such a buddy away? And I said, well, they've got redundant. No, they haven't. And so you ask them, and what happens is there's a crisis at home, or the kid's in trouble at school, or whatever it was, but they wouldn't acknowledge a personal problem. They wouldn't ask for time off for a personal problem. They'd you know, invent a political one. And I think that's one of the big changes now, that people understand the actual pressures on members of parliament in personal terms and that if they're going to be effective representatives, then they've got to experience their lives properly. Yeah, you'd probably get more sympathy now if you had a personal problem than, than saying you've you got would. a political <laughs> yes, reason for not, for not turning up. <laughs> but thing, things got pretty hairy in terms of getting people in who were, who were pretty ill. Oh, yeah, we, we had Alex Lyon in a room with, I don't know what machines, you know, keeping him alive. Uh, we had, in Parliament. In Parliament, brought in in an ambulance, kept there for the curves. When the, the opposition chief whip would go down and make sure he was alive, you wow. know, they wouldn't take your word for it. To They'd count his actually vote. count yeah. him 
as alive before they'd actually uh, acknowledge it. We had ministers flying back in helicopters when the weather was bad, when they shouldn't really have been flying back, but taking that mm. risk in order to get to vote and things of that kind. It was pretty heady and it was all night quite often, but it was purposeful because we were actually trying to do things that mattered for the people that you represented. Because, you know, I have Bolton and we had, even in the winter of discontent, when we had a prices and incomes policy, that policy of and the uh, actual wage increase that was proposed, it was the biggest increase my cotton workers had ever had. So, you, you know, you could actually explain why it was purposeful to keep the show on the road and keep things moving. Yeah, actually, because the comparison, the closest comparison is probably when Theresa May didn't have a majority in every vote with the DUP and all that. But actually... Apart from Brexit, the wheels of government sort of stopped, knowing that they couldn't yeah, get very much through. They, did. they, they did. stopped doing it. And the yeah. really striking thing, reading about this period and seeing the play of this house, is that it, <laughs> part we, of the problem was we, the government kept trying to do we stuff. We kept doing things. As Labour's majority was whittled away in the late 1970s, Margaret Thatcher's Conservatives were on the march. Good evening. Well, it looks like being one of the most exciting election nights ever, with the possibility of a very close result and the prospect of Britain having its first woman Prime Minister at the end of the night. Labour's Ann Taylor was still one of only 20 or so female MPs in the Commons, watching a woman rise to the top from the opposition benches. I didn't look at it that way. What worried me was the way that so many people on my side actually dismissed her and thought she'd be an easy pushover because she was a woman. You know, they just didn't get it. Mm. They thought, you know, country won't have a woman leader. They thought there was extra security there. And that was clearly not going to be the case because she was a good operator in that respect. And she was pretty, you know, pretty ruthless, pretty direct when she was challenging people. You know, she wasn't scared of taking things on but they were very dismissive and and thought the electorate weren't up for it well alas they were wrong after slipping into opposition in 1979 things got worse for labor and for Anne in 1983 where michael foot led the party to one of its worst election defeats i think there's a very stark choice between totally different two totally different policies I've just been looking at the uh, Labour Party policy. It is the most extreme that's ever been put before an electorate. It would change the whole basis of our society. Anne Taylor was one of the victims of the disaster, losing her seat and spending four years pondering whether her political career was over. She dusted herself down and ran for election again in 1987, this time in the West Yorkshire town of Dewsbury. The boundaries changed in 83. Mm. We were all up in the air. It wasn't uh, wasn't a great time. Um, not a great manifesto. Not a great party leader either. <laughs> Michael Foote in 83. He wasn't. He was. He was. He was a good man. But, you know, good men don't make good politicians always. And he was very moral. He was very proper. He was very kind. He was very clever. Um, but he didn't have that connection um, with the electorate that actually is pretty important. And so at that point, you're, you're only in your mid-30s. You've been in the Commons. Mm-hmm. You've been in government. It, one of the most dramatic, chaotic times to be in Parliament. You were out in 1983. Did you think that was you done with politics? I wasn't sure because I'd already had one baby, uh, a little boy, and my daughter was born, what, about five months after the election. So I wasn't really quite sure what to do. So (laughs) I, I... 
started taking other things on and then people kept saying, you know, there's this seat, there's that seat, are you interested? Dewsbury came up, it was on my doorstep and so I thought, okay, let's give it a go. So you came back in in 1987. Yeah. Again, not a great result. How much more miserable is it being in opposition? Oh, total, totally different. I mean, you know, we would all give a year in government for 20 years in opposition, um, however limited and however many constraints. And we're going to see this post-election now. You know, the, the actual economic situation, the problems the country is facing, be it health service, be it education or whatever, the problems are horrendous. And it will be really difficult for all the people who are going to go into government. But even if they're staying up night after night, tearing their hair out at the lack of resources and the difficulty of making progress, they would much rather be in that situation than being correct and winning arguments in opposition. You know, it, it's good to win an argument occasionally. It's good to win an argument frequently, actually. But it doesn't last very long. Whereas the slog of being in government and making things happen and doing things differently and seeing some of that impact, yeah, you'll take that any day. The long march back continued. Neil Kinnock stayed on after losing to Thatcher in 1987 with high hopes of victory five years later. By this point, Ann Taylor was in Kinnock's shadow cabinet. She and Labour seemed on the cusp of something big. So big, the party staged a victory rally a week before polling day. I was never, you know, 100% thinking we were going to win, not least because I always had a difficult constituency because we had the National Front and the far right in Dewsbury all the time and that meant elections were pretty, yeah, pretty lousy in that respect. Uh, And yes, I was at the Sheffield rally and yes, I wasn't comfortable with the Sheffield rally, but few of us were. Um, Well, it takes to the Sheffield rally because everyone's seen the, particularly the clip of Neil. Yeah, yeah. We better get some talking done, yeah, serious talk. Recently I was writing a book and one of the chapters is about the Sheffield Rally and if you watch all of it, it gets madder. You know, the general sense of like, oh, oh here's Mick Hucknell, here's yeah, well, a brass no, band, yeah, yeah, here's but Listen, all of us in Shadow Cabinet <laughs> were announced and yeah. we had to walk down this long, oh, way up to the platform with people who, half of whom had never heard of us, applauding us as if we were God's gift. Uh, so we were all very embarrassed. Um, <laughs> and think, and I can, rem- I can remember um, when we went back into the, the green room afterwards, Donald Jury, uh, Dewar came in and just said, oh, dearie, dear." Dearie, dear, you know, <laughs> Ooh, and we all thought, yep. But my, I mean, but it was strange, really, because my my kids came to that and they thought it was hilarious. They were quite young at the time. Uh, my husband refused to come because he said it was stupid. He went canvassing instead, and has felt self righteous ever since because he was right, wasn't he? <laughs> he may well have been. He may well have been. And then you 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 joined the shadow cabinet of uh, of John Smith, the yeah. shadow education yeah. secretary, and clearly by that point. There is the sense, you know, within a year or two that things are turning around. Yeah. It looks like John Smith's going to be Prime Minister and you're going to be Education Secretary. Yeah, Black Wednesday Mm. just about consolidated our view that there was no way back for the Conservative government. John was incredibly... I mean, you had real confidence in in him as a leader. He was very much a House of Commons person. And that gave everybody a sense of good feeling of security that we really were making progress and we really were on our way. And then obviously he dies in 1994. Yeah. 
I think we all remember the the day and the stunned atmosphere that went through, not just through the Labour Party, it went through the whole of Parliament. Mm. And we really had to sort of think, well, gosh, what do we do now? And we were in mourning and yet having to think about the next stage. And that's a very uncomfortable situation to be in. Um, obviously, Tony Blair takes over at that point, and you sort of, everyone in, within the Labour Party sort of recalibrate to a new leader, and a, <laughs> yeah. having thought it was all about John Smith, it's suddenly all about Tony Blair. How did you find that process? Um, well, he didn't want me to do education. I think he thought my views on education were not quite in line with his, and I think he was probably right. But then he offered me the job of shadow leader of the House, and I thought, what? Yeah, this sounds all right. Um, and I didn't realise quite how right it was because it's a fantastic role because you are there um, at business questions every Thursday. You get you know, really into all areas of policy, so you feel pretty confident about talking about any area of policy. You're part of the business management of the house. So, you know, it's not being chief work, but it's, you know, pretty well involved in how the party is going to run things. After all those failed defeats and false dawns, finally to 1997. Forget the past. No more bosses versus workers. We are on the same side, the same team, and Britain United will win. More than two decades after she was first elected, Anne Taylor entered government as Tony Blair's Commons leader, and a year later, Chief Whip, the first woman in the role. She was in charge of marshalling New Labour's new army, a task perhaps better likened to herding cats. We launched the manifesto, then we all went to different parts of the country to do a day with the local TV and canvassing. And, and I went to the northeast to um, Alan Campbell's constituency. Um, we had fish and chips on the front, on the seafront. That was a very good start. And then we went to canvas with television cameras and we went on this estate of detached new detached houses and I'm thinking okay these cameras are with us let's see how this goes wow the housewives of that area who were the people who were in at that time were so enamoured with Tony Blair that you know you didn't really have to open your mouth just saw the rosette they said Tony Blair and isn't he great and you went off to the next house so you're thinking this is a bit different I'm not seeing anything like it and I don't think it'll be like that this time I don't think we just rolling in the same way. I think it's positive this time, but there was a, a an atmosphere in the whole country um, that you know it was time for a big change and things could only get better and all the rest of it. It it it, it resonated. So then you become chief whip. No, first of all, I came leader of the house. Leader of the house, yes, yes, yep, leader of the yep, house, leader of the house. Uh, so I was the first minister in the 97 government to be sworn in because I was pres leader of the House and president of the Privy Council. Of course, so yeah. I had to be sworn in before I could swear in Tony Blair. So you were sworn in You were sworn in first. So I was sworn in first. So I was the first minister of this of the new government. government. Yeah. Wow. Nice thought. Um, but then you became, but a year later you become Chief, Chief Whip. Chief Whip, yeah. Sort was, of going full circle from the from the Whip's office in the yeah, 1970s. But yeah, yeah. I I was, some big differences. You were Chief Whip, you were in charge. You also had a Massive majority. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's not always a great advantage, I have to tell you. So if people, that. What, so, yeah, people think they, it doesn't matter which way they vote, then if they don't get what they want, you know, they don't get the promotion, they don't get the committee, they don't get the trip abroad, you know, whatever it is, people can actually use minor 
grievances and blow them out of proportion and somehow suddenly make them a, a point of principle. But actually, we, we, we did pretty well. We didn't lose a vote. Mm. Uh, we shouldn't have lost a vote anyway, but we, we didn't and we didn't come near to. We had some tricky issues, but... Um, I think we worked very well as a team. It was a good team of whips. It was a very mixed team. Uh, every whip had its own regional group. I wanted every regional whip to talk to every member of their group about nothing once a month, just to keep in touch and get the feel so that you weren't just going to them when there was a problem. And I think things like that paid off. I mean, whipping isn't just about, you know, wielding a big stick. It is about knowing the people you're dealing with, knowing their concerns and acting as an early warning system yeah. for government about what could go wrong or how things are being received. And I think that that's the part that <clears throat> that, that part isn't always properly understood. In 2005, more than three turbulent decades after first becoming an MP, Anne Taylor stood down and entered the House of Lords. So, after 50 years, just 18 spent in government, a chance to reflect on her bosses over the years. Who was the best? Harold. Harold Wilson. I'm sorry, Tony, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Tony was great, and I've got a lot of time for him, and he did, did an awful lot. But the way Harold... I mean, maybe it made my impressionable age, but the way Harold uh, understood and uh, kept the party together, kept the country together, kept us out of Vietnam... Um, really saw the future in terms of the opportunities for Britain in the 60s and 70s. Um, I think he was ahead of his time and I think he managed to take Britain as well as the Labour Party uh, a long way further forward than other leaders might have done. I suppose I have to ask you then, who was the worst Labour leader you've had? Oh no, I'm not commenting on that. Okay. Well, it's pretty obvious. Go on. Oh, Jeremy. Jeremy Corbyn. Enough of the past then. What of the future? Anne Taylor, former Labour minister who served under Wilson, Callaghan, Blair and Brown on what Keir Starmer needs to do to finish the job. I think he's got to make sure, and I think Sue Gray will be doing some of this, that every individual shadow cabinet minister is ready for government, that they actually know how they're not going to do everything, but they know how they're going to hit the ground running. They know what their first priorities are. They know who's going to be around them and they know what their overall objectives are going to be. So I think that that's important because you've got to have a strong team and not just a strong leader. I think Keir is, apart from Arsenal, a very serious person um, and I think he will actually be a very good Prime Minister. He's not a knockabout politician, um, uh, but he will make a very good Prime Minister. Taylor there reflecting on half a century of Labour history. If you want to get in touch, remember you can email me matt at times.radio or WhatsApp anytime to 0333 003 2353. Just make clear, it's a message for me. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. 